Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Before I introduce this week's guest, I want to thank everyone for all the feedback I received on the podcast with Arnold Kling. I apologize I can't answer everyone personally, but be assured that I read every single one, and I really appreciate the feedback, and that goes for all the feedback you send. A number of people wanted to know why we don't do more timely stuff. I think people like the fact that that was on a timely topic. Uh, there are a variety of reasons, one of which is uh, this is a fairly slim operation, and to tape a few something even a few weeks in advance, often even a week in just a week in advance, and then edit and change it is uh, very costly. So that's um, we're not like a you know a major uh, radio show here in terms of resources, uh, uh, technological and engineering resources anyway. So that's one of the reasons we don't do more timely stuff. But when we have a chance, uh, as we did on that postscript to the Kling podcast, uh, I think it's imperative that we do it. Uh, my guest today is Clay Shirky author of Here Comes Everybody, The Power of Organizing Without Organizations. Clay, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks so much for having me. Your book's a fascinating look at the role of technology in allowing spontaneous organizations to emerge, particularly using the Internet. I'd like to start with the basic economics of organizations that you describe so well in the book. Why do organizations emerge, and what stops them from emerging? Well, you know, the the famous example, or the, rather the the... the you know, the famous observation about that is COSAs from the 1930s, which is organizations exist to lower transaction costs. Uh, the question COSA asked himself was, if markets are such a good idea, why do we have why do we have organizations at all? And in particular, why do we have firms? And his answer was that if everything were a market, the cost of discovering opportunity and writing a contract for every little thing, right, I need some new pencils for my desk, uh, would, would actually swamp the ability of the institution to get larger things done. So businesses exist precisely to lower the transaction costs for the individuals in their employ. Uh, they put people together in departments and they say, you work together. They say, this is how we're dealing with buying enough resources for the whole organization for the day, the week, the month, the year, and so on. And his theory is that uh, the basically organizations exist wherever the lower transaction costs can operate more effectively than in the market. Markets exist, on the other hand, where uh, the level of transaction is large enough and the complexity of the interacting actors is also large enough uh, that you can't have an organized firm, famously the thing that, that did in communism in, the, in the, the, the end of the last century. The interesting thing to me about the Internet, mobile phones, applications built on top of them is that lowering transaction costs becomes a side effect of using the network. I think everybody's noticed that finding things uh, is much easier because of search engines and that transacting is much easier because of e-commerce and so on. Um, those kinds of transactions, they were also met by their social equivalents, which is it's easier to find people who are either interested in what you're interested in or have interests or skills that are complementary to yours, uh, and it's easier to arrange uh, arrange to do things with those people. And, and, and in the book, I walk through the ladder of sharing, collaboration, collective actions, the kinds of things that, that, that these social tools enable. So what, what I think we didn't notice from traditional Kosian theory, everybody focused at the top, right? When does a firm stop being a good idea into the market? But in addition to that nominal Kosian ceiling, there's also Kosian floor. Right? There are a set of transactions that no one engages in because you have to be organized to engage in them, but no organization is willing to eat the costs. Because in those right. cases, the transaction costs are simply too high in traditional settings. Right, and, and, and the ability, there, there, is, there is some institutional overhead, right? The, you know, famously, middle management uh, is, is, is the requirement for managing down transaction costs in a large organization. But the, the, trans, the, the overhead, essentially, of ma- maintaining an institution that can lower those transaction costs itself creates costs. Yeah, explain that, because I thought that was a very nice insight. Well, so, so the, yeah, the example that, uh, where, it, where it first really struck me 
um, was in 2005 uh, in, in, in Coney Island every summer. New York's famously run-down uh, run-down amusement park. Uh, th- there's an event called the Mermaid Parade. Uh, and the local hipsters sort of dress up in these various funny costumes, most of them nautically themed, and you know, march around, uh, march around Coney Island. There's, there's, you know, hundreds of people in the parade. There's thousands, maybe ten thousand people turn out to watch. Uh, it's all very, it's all very picturesque and fun. And in 2005, up on Flickr, the photo sharing service, um, came this incredible agglomeration of thousands of pictures, over 3,000 pictures of the Mermaid Parade. And it came about because Flickr had added tagging, right? These freeform labels first, first pioneered by Delicious. People would take these photos, uh, upload them to Flickr to their own personal accounts, but also tag the Mermaid Parade. So if you went and looked at the tag Mermaid Parade, you automatically, as a side effect of the platform, got this aggregate view of the Mermaid Parade. Now, the the cost of doing that in an institutional setting would have, would have included advertising costs, right? Trying to find people who fit the bill of both is a photographer, will be at the Mermaid Parade, which is fantastically inefficient, as every advertiser knows. And then doing something to kind of coordinate or extract those people's photos uh, after the fact. And there's no profit motive there. No one sells these photos, right? Uh, there's, you know, pork pork barrel politics, even being what it is, no one is going to stand up on the floor of the House of Representatives and say, you know, I need half a million dollars to aggregate photos of roller skating mermaids. And so... We can dream, can't we? But yeah, I guess it doesn't happen. One can always dream, but... (laughs) so, So it wasn't just that Flickr did something an institution could do in a different way. What Flickr did was it did something no institution can do, which is to create, just as a side effect of these self-interested actions, this large-scale aggregation of a kind of social value because the photos were valuable. People wanted to look at the photos. They've gotten a lot of traffic. It's just that the, the, the gap between a bunch of people would like to look at this a little bit and a bunch of people are willing to pay a lot of money to look at this it's in that gap that a lot of these effects are appearing, where things below the Kosian floor are now happening for the first time. Now, it's a really beautiful example because, as you say, there is value there, just not enough to overcome the transactions costs of putting that product together uh, for profit. And yet there's a tremendous amount of pleasure we get from these aggregated, somewhat unintended um, Collections. It's an amazing right, thing. And I, I, would, I would go all the way. I would say, in a way, completely unintended. Yes. Because, for, and it, you know, I, I, I use this example in the book, right? For Flickr to have tried to put together the collection of mermaid parade photos, first of all, someone in San Francisco would have had to know that in Coney Island we have this thing called the Mermaid Parade. And then they would have had to take all of these additional steps to kind of organize or coordinate the, the potential photographers. And that is so far beyond Flickr staff's capabilities that it would actually hamper the ability to create this novel value if they tried to do it in any kind of directed way. And I think there's a there's a program I haven't I haven't used it, but I understand it's in I think it's in beta that allows people to uh, aggregate these photos and create a 3D image of various photos. Yeah, exactly. And that's just an unbelievable thing. Flickr becomes the input to to Blaze's Photosynth program out of the out of the Microsoft Research Labs because you need multiple multiple exposures of a single space just to knit into this three D three D vision. And they started with um, uh, the Piazza San Marco in Venice, right? One of the most photographed environments ever in the world. So it was easy to get lots of those photos, but to do the average city block or even a piece of Coney Island, you need amateurs involved. Right. right? No one's going to pay professionals to go out and do this work. And yet the work is being done every day by the amateurs. The tourists, it's, yeah. It's the aggregating step that's the missing piece. And that's where transaction costs prevent it from happening in a, in a, uh, a world where the cozy and floor is as high as it is. And now that that floor has dropped... Um, we suddenly see lots of things which are done in an organized but not an institutional way. I want to digress for a second on Flickr because I, I'm so fascinated by it. 
Um, one of the things that's inevitably um, ha- seems to be happening, well, the big debate about how big it is, but uh, words are becoming less important and images are becoming more important. Reading is becoming less important mm. and skimming and right. browsing is more important. And Flickr, I think, has two or three billion images. And yep. I think Facebook... It's on the way to three. And Facebook, I think, has over five. So just it's, it's a so, that alone is a social phenomenon I think most people aren't aware of. You think about the I – mean, forget about the bandwidth, but just think about the access people have now to visual images, most of which are totally uninteresting, right? Your, your niece, uh, niece's birthday party with the cake well, in her so hair. I'll, I'll put a big asterisk on that totally uninteresting. Yeah, well, go ahead, because I, well, I, I find it extraordinarily fascinating myself. So I'm. But, 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 but even, even I mean, you, you obviously are looking at this as a, as a social contract, but, but the, the, the big change here, right, the change in a way underlying the rest, of the, the, the technological change underlying the, the sort of new social capabilities is the fusing of the old pattern of a broadcast network and a communications network. <clears throat> It used to be that you could tell the difference between kinds of messages depending on their mode of carriage. Somebody who said something on TV was different than somebody who said something on the phone. But now that it's all coming into the same box, um, people of a certain age, my age and, 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 and older, are having cognitive dissonance because we grew up in that world. But it's not that way anymore. Correct. And so the photo of, of someone else's niece is almost totally uninteresting, as you say, in the sense that almost no one in the world cares about it. But the people who do care about that woman are very happy to see that photo. That's correct. We're not used to seeing things that are in public but not for the public, right? If it's, if it's out there where I can see it, right, it's implicitly out there for my judgment, whether it's up on a movie screen or on the front page of the newspaper or whatever. That's not true anymore. People are communicating to one another in a medium that scales pretty effortlessly from, from, from almost completely private to, to, to completely public. And so for the first time, and again, as, as, in, you know, as a result of these lower transaction costs, something doesn't have to be interesting for, to more than two people for it to be worth putting up online. And yeah. that, that shift is, as you say, enormous because... Um, and there's, there's really two things, right? Digital cameras make it a lot easier to take those images, but the network also makes it easier to share them. And so even, even when there were you know, billions of images lying around on the world's cameras, there was no rolled-up aggregate view of them, and now, and now there is. And that aggregate view isn't just a sort of post-hoc gathering of these images because it actually creates the incentive for more people to take more pictures. Yeah, and I was going to – my own asterisk on it is actually I like looking at, at pictures of people's family members often because it teaches me how to take better pictures of my family. I've right. become much more interested in photography going this, to Flickr and seeing the incredible visual beauty right. that is – I don't have to go to an art gallery anymore. I don't have right. to buy a book. I don't have to uh, buy a, a print. I can just for f- free – other than my time, I can see extraordinary aesthetic beauty and it makes me want to do a better job with my camera. Yeah, the, the old model where to try to get better at taking photographs meant joining a photo club, g- g- subscribing to a popular photography magazine, doing these kind of various geeky things meant that there was a very high threshold between the average snapshot taker and anybody who was working at it as, as a craft, even just for self, you know, self-interest and as a hobby. Um, that gap has now become a spectrum because everybody's exposed all the time to these these photos and can go in and ask the photographer, hey, that's great, you know, how'd you take that shot or what were you thinking or what kind of camera did you use or whatever. And it, the, the threshold of learning something new has fallen in part as a result of the socialization of sharing or the, yeah. you know, the increased <laughs> social scope of sharing. Rather. No, it's a beautiful thing. Let's go back to the economics of organizations uh, talk about the example used in the book, which really grabbed me as a uh, powerful and, and useful way to think about this. Uh, talk about the birthday paradox and, uh, and the going out, choosing a movie, and how the lessons that has for uh, – that those examples have for organizations in the traditional style and then in the current internet world that we're talking about. Well, the, the, you know, the, the, the birthday paradox I hit on as, as the explanation to use, because in my classes I have to teach 
uh, essentially what happens to social complexity as the size of the network goes up. And the birthday paradox is fairly simple, which is if you're in a line with 35 other people, you just imagine you're standing in line to get tickets or something, uh, and, the, and the guy next to you in line says, you know, I'll bet you 100 bucks that uh, two people in this line share a birthday. Most people won't take that bet because they reason that if there's 36 people in line, uh, that there's only a 1 in 10 chance that two people share a birthday. But that's because they're thinking about the wrong thing, and this is really about the, the, the head shift that comes to thinking about networks. The birthday paradox doesn't count individuals. It counts pairs of people because that's what goes into a comparison between my birthday and your birthday. So if there's two of us there, right, if it's just me and the guy who's offering the bet, right, there's only two birthdays, there's only one comparison. But if there's three of us there, there's three pairs of birthdays. Four of us there, are six pairs of birthdays. Five of us there, are ten pairs of birthdays. The number of pairs, the number of potential connections uh, between people rises with the square of the number of participants, not not at the same rate as the number of participants. And as a result, by the time you get 36 people, you've got over an 80% chance that they share a birthday. And, and it's that shift from looking at the nodes on a network to the connections, whether potential or actual, uh, that makes it clear why large organizations are just qualitatively different than small organizations. A big city is not a little town on steroids. Uh, a multinational is not just a startup with more people. They actually have to run themselves differently because of the communications channel. Uh, the example I used, you know, a, a slightly more real-world example, uh, again, from the book, is if you and a friend want to go to a movie, it's relatively easy to negotiate your way to some kind of, I, you know, I want to go see this one or that one, we, you know, go home, work, whatever, you know, early, late show. You can, you, can, you can come to some accommodation pretty easily. Imagine trying to get 10 friends to agree on a movie. Which is still a right? small number for an organization. <laughs> exactly. And it's, it's just the number of comparisons of preferences you have to do is the number of, of you know, potential movie grows, grows by even a little bit. The number of potential comparisons you have to do. Ten friends is 45 comparisons of what do you like, what do you like. And then you've got to roll all of those up. And very soon, right, you get to a point where there has to be either some formal mechanism like voting or some governance strategy like I'm going to this movie at this time. Anybody who wants to join me can join me. And the, the, the requirement for unilateralism isn't a function of, you know, people being politically evil or whatever. It's just it's the only way to manage large groups in an institutional setting. So in an institutional setting, you've got a person at the top, you've got the middle-level managers, and you've got to coordinate the thousands of employees through right. very specific chains of command. Yep. But that's different on the web. Why? It's different on the web because – the web privileges strategies of effectiveness over efficiency. Uh, when you look at Wikipedia, say, with, with roughly 2 million, in the English language version, something on the order of, of, of 2 million contributors, um, and then when you blow that across various languages, you're looking at something you know, like 5 million contributors. Um, there's no way to manage those people, right? The, 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 managerial, the, 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 the managerial group of Wikipedia, numbering in the dozens, is one ten thousandth the size of the editorial culture uh, of Wikipedia. Maybe one one hundred thousandth, come to think of it. Um, what, do you, what do you mean by that? That, that the number of contributors, if, if you look at a newspaper, right, the number of people who write words to be published in the newspaper is less than 50% of the total size of the institution. The managerial culture, which is to say every employee, is twice as large as the editorial culture. On Wikipedia, the editorial culture is 100,000 times as large as the managerial culture. And so if you did something like say, oh, you know, you should just register every user in some way, you should keep track of them in some way, and that cost you a dime a year, <laughs> It would cost the Wikimedia Foundation a million dollars a year to do something like just, that. Just to keep track, let alone tell them what to write and what to exactly fix. Right. And, yeah. Exactly right. Just, just, right. just to register them. If that cost a dime, it would bankrupt the Wikimedia Foundation. So this is an extraordinary example of, of uh, 
the wisdom of crowds or what Hayek called um, emergent order and organization without an organizer or just a little titch of organization in the case of Wikipedia. Well, so, no, no, it's, it's uh, so, yeah, the, the, the subtitle of the book has turned out in a way, the power of organizing without organizations has turned out to be, it sounds much more age of Aquarius than I meant it to sound. <laughs> Sorry. All, all, all I meant was the observation you just made, which is when we see organized behavior, we assume an organization is behind it, right? Someone is directing people to write that Wikipedia page, and that's not, in fact, the case. What I didn't mean was, oh, old way hierarchies, new way networks, right? Yeah, We've no, all been looking at that PowerPoint slide for 10 years, and it's not true. <laughs> let's, let's uh, go, but let's go back to your 10-person example in the movies. One of the implications of that, and you talk about it uh, in, in different ways, is collective action is, is difficult because of our differences, our different preferences, yep. our different costs. And that's why a lot of collective action doesn't take place uh, that would be useful because the transaction right. costs right. are too high. Right. Any thoughts on democracy as a um, high transaction cost, uh, inefficient way to get stuff done? Well, it's really, I mean, it's, it's interesting because there are really two kinds of democracy that we have to distinguish between this direct democracy uh, and there's 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 representative democracy, and the interesting thing about direct democracy is that all of the examples we have of working direct democracy, the Swiss Canton system, town meetings in the in the in the northeastern United States, and so forth, uh, are are specifically limited by scale. Uh, that in Switzerland there are certain sizes of either cantonships or towns that are not allowed to have direct democracy any longer because the transaction cost become too high. Ditto in Massachusetts. Boston could not govern itself via a town hall meeting structure. And so... A family has trouble, right? Sometimes a family is too big for a town hall meeting, right? (laughs) We sit around. We're trying to decide what movie to go to or what to have for dinner, and often it's done autocratically. Right, right, right. And so so what, what direct democracy assumes is that at small scale, enough people can get involved enough of the time to make the system, you know, suitably representative. Um, but past that scale, uh, you can't do that anymore. What, what seems to me to be, at, at the very least, worth experimenting with now is whether or not you can, at higher scales, if not yet at national scale, do a better job of representing people's preferences in such a way that you rely less on, oh, you know, I've elected a representative and that person is now acting completely on my behalf and more a a relatively direct uh, polling uh, in the in the you know figurative sense of people's views. In New York City right now we have a situation where uh, the city council because we're a representative democracy may vote to overturn the term limits bill that voters have approved not once but twice. Uh, and they may do it because our mayor would like to be mayor for a third term, and as the quid pro quo, he's also holding something out to the to the city council to let them also run for a third term. Uh, the voters have 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 been, and I voted against term limits. I don't even think they're a particularly good idea, but I like democracy a lot. And the idea of the city council simply overriding the, the clearly expressed will of the voters because they can strikes me as a fairly large bug in the representative system. So it seems to me the potential hybridization of democracy is that there are some questions which to, to, to which the will of the people can and should be deferred to, where that, the, the sense of what, what matters and what people believe and want to have happen um, can be arranged in a way that doesn't require, you know, biannual or quadrennial elections, but can be, can be more directly assessed using, e- using email, using mobile phones, etc. There's obviously have, a lot of design challenges in getting that to be done fairly, but it's, it's, it's a possibility now where it wasn't even five years ago. I'd go the other way. Um, I would take those, most of those decisions out of the political marketplace because they can't be decided very well. I mean, I, when you talk about the 10 people trying to go to a movie, if six of them want to go to a romantic comedy and, and uh, let's say uh, six of them want to go to a gory action film and four of them want to go to a romantic comedy right. to say let's have a vote and six votes go for the gory action film. So the, the will of the group is gory action is just an illusion. It's not the will of the group. It's what the majority wants. But in a case where you don't have to have collective action, it seems strange to me. No, no, right. There, 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 there are certainly places where if – 
if there can be a live and let live uh, decoupling uh, of of majority decision from universal decision that 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 should happen. And that's that, I mean that's just seems completely cognizant with the sort of basic principles of liberty. But there are a bunch of places where the government has to decide hard questions that are provisioned like public goods, which is to say has to be provisioned for everybody all the time, garbage collection, school, and so forth and so on. Whoa, 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 whoa. Why, are those, why do those have to be publicly provided to everyone all the time? Because they're, cheap, they're cheaper to do that way, and because, I mean, this is, this is the, um, you know, this is the flip side of the birthday paradox, or the, the sort of economic ramifications of the birthday paradox, which is Mansur Olson's argument about uh, the, um, what he calls the logic of collective action, which is uh, public goods exist in part because if they're to be privately provisioned past a certain scale, everybody has an incentive to opt out. And so the public, public goods get under-created in purely voluntary environments. No totally nation has ever had voluntary tax uh, tax rolls, for example. Cities have, but, so, but but let's put that to the side. I, I totally agree with, with that logic, of course. The the problem, though, is that what is defined as a public good seems to stretch over yeah, time. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I don't see any any reason that, and through much of American history, it wasn't the case that schools had to be publicly provided. We have a thriving private school system. We have thriving oh, in private... A, in the schools, no, 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 fair enough. Private fair garbage enough, right? collection. I think, and, I think, in <laughs> fact, one of the really interesting examples... Um, is the use of the internet to turbocharge the homeschooling movement? Because yeah, a nice the you know the, the the popular notion of homeschooling is these are people who've dropped out of society. They've essentially you know pulled themselves into the walls of the compound or what have you. Um, the reality, in fact, is that they've dropped out of a bit of state-sponsored society, but are in deep and long-lasting conversation with one another. And they're sharing, um, they're, they're, they're sharing educational materials, they're sharing advice. There's a used textbook market that, that exists only within uh, the homeschooling network. And this is an example of the kind of infrastructure that could previously only be provisioned by uh, the state as, as support for a large-scale schooling system um, is now being provisioned not by individual families, each for their own children, but but families who are networked with one another um, and building building things that essentially work like the economics of public goods but are not provided by the state. And, you know, when people talk to – I like your example of pulling within the compound. I think a lot of people assume that homeschool kids sit by themselves all day in their, um, in their house uh, reading or, or, or on the internet – when in fact there's also an enormous social component to the homeschool network where people are linking up with other homeschoolers face to face using the internet to create those right. those networks right and this is i mean this is a big part of the this is a big part of the coordination stuff which is you know as i as i say in the book i think we're witnessing the end of cyberspace the idea that the internet is a separate and alternative space to which you retire from the from the real world i mean people are increasingly using the internet to to Augment their real world activities rather than rather than provide an alternative to yeah, them. Talk more about that. I, I, we're going to. I'm going to come back to some of these other issues we've touched on, but I want you to talk about that because uh, part of what you're talking about in the book, a lot of what you're talking about, is about the creation of community, a new social yeah. technique, a new technology to create community. And there's a lot of um, pushback, I think probably from older folks uh, who aren't accustomed to it, as you pointed out earlier, people who are uneasy with these new forms of, of communication. But a lot of people look at this and say, well, this is creepy. You know, this is, this, is, uh, this is bowling alone. This is people sitting at their terminal becoming uh, fat, and, and uh, the quality of the communication is horrible. People are sending these misspelled, one-sentence communications to each other, and they're becoming these geeky, warped people because they don't interact with human beings. They just – they're in love with their BlackBerry. Talk about whether that, that extreme view, whether there's any truth to it, and then what this – what you mentioned just now, the social phenomenon, the face-to-face -face well, part. Well, so the extreme view – so the, the, the curious thing to me about the extreme view – I mean, it's, it's certainly the case that, that emails are misspelled and so forth. I mean, part of that is it gets back to – this distinction between communication and broadcasting, which is, if it's writing that I'm seeing, I'm used to it having been spell-checked, uh, because it's come from a professional publication. Uh, people are reading and writing more now than they used to. Um, that the, uh, that 
many of the criticisms that the Internet is coming in for are not actually directed at the Internet. They're directed at the culture created by television. Um, the idea of a screen coming into the house and alienating people from, from social society, like that battle was fought and lost by the 1960s. Yeah. Um, people and, do still complain about it, but yeah. But, 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 but the complaints have now shifted. Those complaints have now shifted largely to the Internet, um, to you know, target, target the Internet, target mobile phones and so forth. But it seems to me that, that the, it, it is a half-time job for every man, woman, and child in the industrialized world right now what is? to watch television, mm-hmm. right? 20 hours a week on average, more than 20 in some countries, 28, the, the, the industrialized world high in the United Kingdom. And the idea that the people who are spending a half-time job's worth of time every week, week in and week out, are now doing some of that with a keyboard and mouse attached to the screen. The idea that that's the calamity strikes me as <laughs> as almost completely <laughs> reversed to what is the case, which is there is much more social interaction going on than there is simply watching TV passively. And one of the things that I think is, is, is not well understood yet is that among you know among people in the cohort 25 and below all of this stuff is so ubiquitously available again mobile phones and and internet connections that they're not using the internet as an alternative to their real world social life they're actually using it to socialize with people they know dana boyd has done uh, the, the berkeley sociologist has done phenomenal work on um, showing that the rise in social network use among teenagers correlates with the reduction in the freedom to simply go outside. That they're, in fact, responding to the fact that, that, that parents and teachers and, and other you know, adults are um, keeping teenagers indoors and away from one another more and more at exactly the moment when they used to socialize directly. And that these, these kids are responding um, by maintaining a social life despite the fact that they're being physically restrained from getting around one another. And they're being physically so, restrained because we're so cautious and exactly worried right. about our exactly kids getting right. kidnapped. And teenagers, and, teenagers are simultaneously, in some cases the same person, just in some cases a few of teenagers, they're simultaneously tremendously at risk from, from criminal activity and are tremendously at risk of committing criminal activity. And so we both fear for them and fear them. And the result is, is a kind of mass house arrest for the adolescents in our midst. That's a fascinating observation. And they have, they have responded by moving their social life to the media they're allowed to have access to. When I was 10 years old, I, uh, I got on a bus. I was living in Lexington, Massachusetts. I got on a bus Got a uh, bus to Arlington, I think it was. I got on the Met on the subway, the uh, the T in Boston, yep. and went to Fenway Park with a fellow uh, fifth grader. Wow! The idea, yeah. And we, you know, we bought tickets. The, the police would come to your parents' house and arrest. Uh, right, exactly. Them. The idea that I would send my ten-year-old to a Nats game uh, here in D.C. on his own with his buddy uh, is is unfortunately a horrifying thought. Right. Um, I don't quite know how that changed the way it did. That's an interesting sociological question, which we'll leave for another time. But l- l- I want to move on to um, collaboration, because yep. we- we've talked about sharing and, the- and these implications uh, and the socializing that- with the teenagers I love. But talk about g- – give us the history of Wikipedia, because it's such an interesting story, this yep. transformation from Newpedia to Wikipedia. And just talk about the fundamental economics of Wikipedia and uh, – and where you think it's uh, where where it's going and where it's been? Well, so this the, the the Newpedia story is in many ways the story of the failure of the uh, institutional model of transaction costs to be grafted successfully onto the web. Newpedia was a project started by Jimmy Wales, the the, the sort of spiritual father of Wikipedia, as it were. Uh, started by Jimmy Wales in two thousand. He had previously been at a company called Bomus and had, in fact, it was his company, had a company called Bomus and had seen how, how eager were, users were to contribute, right? Again, because once, once we're let out of this television, meat-dominated, consume-only world to actually produce and share things, people, you know, people gravitate towards that because we're social creatures. So he decided to try and do this with an encyclopedia. And so... He hired Larry Sanger, who was a was was a uh, a student, among other things, of epistemology of the, of the science or the, the philosophy of learning, 
And they designed a process for creating the encyclopedia, which included seven steps. It had classic workflow. You know, experts would start the article. They would be vetted. They would be fact-checked. They would be spell-checked and so forth. As anybody who's worked in a large organization knows, uh, a seven-step process means there are seven places where things can simply grind to a halt. And because this is a voluntary effort, that is exactly what happened. And after nine months of existence, Newpedia had you know a dozen articles. Uh, but they were very good. Those dozen. I'm, I'm sure those dozen were wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> right. Hi, hi, highly polished, but not yeah, an encyclopedia with a dozen entries. It's thin. Yeah. It, it doesn't. It almost doesn't matter how good they are because it's not what makes an encyclopedia. Good. Yeah. And so, desperate to jumpstart the process, uh, Larry, in fact, who's now become the great enemy of Wikipedia, but but at the time, uh, Larry Sanger uh, had discovered wikis. This this model of anyone can edit the page, invented by Ward Cunningham several years earlier. And Larry picked up Ward's intuition and brought it to Jimmy and said, we ought to try this thing. So they send out a, a little piece of mail, an incredibly modest piece of mail, saying to the people who are working on Newpedia, look, we're just trying this wiki thing. Go there, log in, create a little article. It'll take all of 10 minutes, right? It was, it was so the opposite of, you know, crazy world-beating announcement. It was this very, very simple thing. And it took off, famously. Right. And by the end of the year that they launched the wiki, it became clear that Newpedia had simply choked on its own process uh, and that Wikipedia was viable. And Wikipedia was viable because it replaced all of the organized process that forms around institutions that manage transaction costs. We need this checkoff and that kind of expert and so forth. And it had replaced it with massive perennial peer review. Everything was provisional. Um, and, and in my mind, one of the really big successes of Wikipedia was not to give veto power to experts. Because one of the reasons things don't happen in institutional settings is because the people who are in charge uh, enjoy the fact that if they do nothing, nothing happens. Yeah. And so you could say, well, someday we're going to get some expert to come around and write an article on asphalt. We'll get the world's asphalt expert in here or whatever. And because that never happens, you never get an article on asphalt. Well, on Wikipedia, someone just went in and wrote an article that said asphalt's a material used to cover roads, right? Which is ridiculous. It's, 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 it's utterly simplistic and useless and so forth. But once that article went up, other people went in and said, oh, that's ridiculous. I could do better. And then they started to. And now the asphalt article is two separate, 5,000-word, highly researched articles, one on the chemical asphalt and one on asphalt concrete used to, I, used to cover roads. I can't wait to read that. And it's that ability to switch the process from efficient to effective. Wikipedia is the opposite of efficient. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a farrago of inefficiency. But because everything is provisional, and because it operates at a scale which is inconceivably large, more people contribute to Wikipedia than work at Walmart, the world's largest employer, uh, it is able, nevertheless, um, to broker a kind of conversation in which the process is articles get better over time. So where Wikipedia is going, and that's how Wikipedia got to where it is, where it's going is it's going into a bunch of really hard governance questions. Right. Wikipedia has gotten, you know, has, 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 has succeeded because it's so dramatically lowered transaction costs, but that opens the way to all kinds of system gaming, right? Famously, the editing of the Palin, uh, the Sarah Palin uh, article before the announcement and so forth. And so Wikipedia is having to back into certain kinds of governance models to prevent people from taking advantage of the system. And it's, it's, it's in my mind, the Wikimedia Foundation now, now essentially makes up the experimental wing of political science because they're having to figure out how to balance the relative freedom of anybody to participate uh, with the fact that they expose themselves to a lot of system gaming when that happens. I mean, you know, on a more trivial level, I have the same problem on my blog at Cafe yeah, Hayek. Uh, I get a lot of fascinating comments and a lot of comments I wish weren't there. Uh, I don't want to run the comment section because it's – could spend, right. I spend all my time on it. It's not worth right. it. So I let it emerge into whatever it's, whatever it's going to be. It's not so important. But Wikipedia is a very much more useful thing than my blog. So um, it's, it's a challenging – it's a very challenging question. Let me ask you a technical question about Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. If I go into um, uh, Clay Shirky's uh, Wikipedia entry and I decide to – to change your uh, birthplace to Hawaii and that your real middle name is Wiki and 
I had a bunch of garbage up there. Uh Um, Well, you might visit your page now and then, so it's not a very good example. Let's say I do it to George. I I actually, I actually don't. Although I send other other people, I've given up on my own bio and I just send them to the Wikipedia page. Yeah, I mean, I've never touched mine. I've got a bio up there too, and I I, someone I edited mine once to change my birth year to the correct one, but other than that. But what I find interesting, and I think again, those of us who aren't as technologically savvy as others, I mean, I've sent a lot of people to Wikipedia over the age of fifty, and they say. Uh, their first question is always, well, uh, how do I know what's right there? And, of course, we understand that as a collaborative process, it might not be right. right. But we understand that mistakes get fixed. What stops um, – what's the process by which those mistakes get fixed in the following sense? There's a George Washington page. If someone goofs around with the George Washington page and makes him, um, uh, let's say, says he was born on the planet Mars – how long does it take to get fixed? Who fixes? Who notices it? Do you have to surf there? Does someone no, have to you don't. Sur- so, 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 who who notices it? Are people who have put that page on their so-called watch list? And the minute anybody makes a change, anybody looking, anybody who's got the page on the watch list gets a piece of email and gets an alert saying, "Oh, you know, such and such a page changed." Um, and they go in and they look at the change, you know, and, and not everybody who's got it on the watch list looks at the change all the time, but people go in and look at the change and they'll say, yeah, okay, I'm not going to touch that. That looks fine. Or they're going to say, uh, oh, George Washington, not born on Mars. I'm reverting this change. So there's, so a, there's a set of voluntary editors who are doing that. Yeah, right. Just, it's just, just everyday people. It's just, it's just people. Yeah. Um, but the fact that it's just people, it's people who – it's, care. it's yeah. people who care. And so here's the amazing thing that wikis do. They make it easier to undo damage than they make it to do damage. Imagine it was easier to take spray paint off a brick wall than to put it on. That's, that's the energetic shift of a Wikipedia, right? We're used to graffiti. We're used to vandalism. What we're not used to is a world in which the design of the system makes it easier to undo vandalism than to do vandalism. So there was a site that went up, Wiki Travel, um, and because I look at you know novel wikis for research, or whatever I go to Wiki Travel. It's been up, I don't know, a day or so. When I looked up, there was already an entry on New York City. I go and look at it, and it's a joke, right? It's 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 somebody went and put in this this you know ridiculous joke entry on on New York City, basically kind of expressing contempt for the entire process. For the process or for the city? I, you know, for the process because okay. they also did it to Boston, Massachusetts, <laughs> and one other one other place. Um, so I looked at this, and I deleted it, and deleting it took me less than 30 seconds. Then I went and found that user's IP address, and I looked at the other things that user had done, and I went to all of those articles, and they were all fake. It took me end-to-end, minute and a half, two minutes, to undo about two hours of work. This person had gone in. They obviously thought they were very clever. They were making these funny things. Ha, ha, ha. You know, they were going to be getting all this attention. Uh, and then some guy they don't even know goes in, and in less than two minutes, just resets it. So suppose that those articles were all serious and uh, you just didn't like this person or you didn't like the person, right. the author's political perspective or the author's view of urbanization, whatever it was, and says, you know, I'm going to mess with this guy. I'm just going to take down all his articles. Yep. You could do that too, right? Right. So and it's kind of like reverse vandalism. Taking the spray paint off can also be costly because it yeah. takes down and art. So, and so, these, these, so, so the, the, the absolute worst case is you get into an edit war. Where, where a group of people completely committed to doing that kind of work um, essentially fight each other back and forth. That happens occasionally on Wikipedia and they lock the page. But the thing is, because my changes are also in the history list, somebody yeah. else can go in and say, sure. hey, somebody deleted the whole entry on New York, and that shouldn't be back there. That, sh- that shouldn't be the case. So, in, so in, the, the, in the logistics of the system, is there a backstop who says, you know, <clears throat> you know this, this shirky guy's a jerk. He, he's clearly the, the bad guy here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep the articles. Or is it just going to keep evolving and can go back and forth? It, it keeps evolving and goes back and forth to, you know, well into the 90th percentile. There are some famous examples, as with the editing of the George Bush article in the run-up to the 2004 election. Um, uh, funnily enough, the Galileo article right now is what's called semi-protected, which is to say there are some additional controls for anonymous users to be able to edit it because the 500-year-old flame war about the Catholic Church's culpability in the trial of Galileo has now alighted on Wikipedia. But that's so awesome. It's, it's just you know, so it's really, fascinating. It's amazing. It's, so it's the, so, so, so the, the, the basic answer to your question is no, the, the you know, the... Having a court of final appeal 
is not part of almost any of this process. The, the completely factual answer is, yes, there is a group of people who will weigh in, but, but remarkably, in over 99% of the cases, it's not actually needed. It turns out that with the right incentives, including the knowledge that the software is basically on the side of the angels, right? that it's designed to help people defend something good rather than to create something bad or destroy something good, um, emboldens the people who want Wikipedia to be better today than it was yesterday. And because it makes it so much easier to defend than attack, the defenders have an advantage, which is, which is it's one of the first examples in the history of the Internet where the defenders have an advantage. You will have been on a mailing list or a bulletin board somewhere where some set of blowhards just comes in and ruins it for everybody, right? And, sure. and they're ruining it for everybody in part because there is no defense against them. What Ward did in designing the original wiki was to simply shift the economics in favor of the people who say, we like it here, we want to stay here, we want to talk to each other and create something of value, and to give those people a way to defend themselves. How do you and do that? And this is true of wikis generally. It's not just Wikipedia. Yeah, how does the technology do that? The technology does it by, by giving everything a history list, by making everything fairly radically transparent. Yeah, that's true. So that... Uh, if I say, oh gosh, this guy went in and he changed, you know, he changed all of these salient facts about George Washington, I don't have to go in and do the same amount of work you did to undo the fact. I just picked the last edit before you touched it, and I repost that. Yeah, that's very cool. <laughs> it, it's because the whole history of the thing is available that if I don't do anything else, I can at the very least reset a vandalized article to its last known good state. And that, that, that ability to do that in, in you know, a couple of clicks means that anybody who does any writing at all, um, really the only way to make an attack lower energy than the defense is just to delete an article and write poop in its place or something. Um, but then that's so visibly, obviously, an attack that nobody even has to think twice about reverting it. And the, the, that, it's, it's, it's that transparency and availability of the history of those articles that makes that 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 helps give the advantage to the defenders i I want to turn to a concept that's related to this which is which you've been talking about which is cognitive surplus right um it's a really extraordinary insight so uh, it comes from partly from wikipedia tell and or at least it's an application uh what do you you mean by that idea well the the idea behind cognitive surplus relates to this thing i was saying earlier about about a watching television being a half-time job for every, every man, woman, and child in the industrialized world, which is Wikipedia and related services, open source software, the weblog world, all, all work by aggregating people's voluntary contributions with leisure time. And you will see a lot of people essentially saying, you know, where do people find the time to do this? In fact, I was, I was asked that question. I started thinking about this, this model when I was talking to a television producer who uh, was interviewing me to see if I should be on a show after, after, the, after the book came out. And I told her about Wikipedia, and, and she came back to me and said, you know, where do people find the time? And I said, you know, nobody who works in TV gets to ask that question uh, because you know that the, the time comes from the 20 hours a week we all spend we all spend watching television now and it's it's really the shift so the idea of cognitive surplus is the shift from seeing leisure time uh, time that we have when we're awake but not working um, that we can all voluntarily commit to activities that make us happy it's the shift from seeing that as an individual problem of what do I do with 20 hours every week to seeing it as an aggregate that we can design around. So Wikipedia looks like this huge, crazy thing, right? And, and, and Martin Wattenberg and I at IBM traded around some figures. We, we, we have calculated that sort of back of the envelope, uh, Wikipedia in all its languages has taken roughly 100 million hours of human time, which seems like a big number. Uh, until you compare it to the trillion hours a year of television viewing in the industrialized world, or to put a different gloss on it, to note that Americans watch 100 million hours every weekend just watching ads. So once you start thinking of this surplus of leisure time as something you can design around in aggregate rather than something that each individual has to deal with, uh, things like Wikipedia become much more explainable because it doesn't take 
uh, it doesn't take a lot of recruiting and management the way organizational or institutional work does. It just takes invitation and rewards, right? Anybody can come in. If you come here, come in here and like it, come do some more. And it's, it's really people who are designing around that surplus as uh, a, a kind of raw material for the 21st century rather than just a series of individual leisure time choices that are, I think, designing the services that are really, um, you know, they're just really providing a kind of, you know, a, a, a set of capabilities that just couldn't, couldn't have existed prior to now. And one of the things that, that I... It fascinates me about it, and it comes back to our earlier conversation about public goods, is that um, I think if you'd asked an economist in 1950, 1960, 1970, 1980, 90, even 2000, could Wikipedia work, they'd all say no. Most of them would because they'd say – A bunch of people are still saying no. Well, yeah. <laughs> but they'd say, well, it can't work, you see, because you don't get any, any glory. You get so little glory from this. There's no profit. Uh, everyone's going to free ride. They're going to let. They'd love to read Wikipedia if it existed, but no one's going to create it because it's um, there's a free riding problem. And those folks uh, were wrong. Yeah. Uh, they misunderstood. And you know, it's it's um, it's not just economists. People misunderstood the pleasure, the pure pleasure that overcomes some of that free riding problem. Yeah. And and the pleasure. What's interesting about it to me is that. There is some private return in all these examples. So when I put up uh, my first pictures on Flickr, I got comments and I could look at my hit count and see that people were finding it. And I could link to that page on forums about the camera I was using. Yep. Uh, and people – I got some trivial, non-monetary, which is not irrelevant, but not large, non-monetary pleasure yeah. from, from that experience. And I presume that Wikipedia people do that too. But yep. it's a massive – Social, public, positive externality when people are doing this. And it's unprecedented in human history. I mean, it's one thing to go down to your your soup kitchen and volunteer there. That's a good deed that that presumably makes the world a better place. This is a way to contribute to the world that people are doing voluntarily uh, and getting pleasure from it. Theory is too grandiose a word. Here is some wild speculation, um, and it actually relates in a, in a kind of tangential way to the current financial crisis. Um, Bill Hamilton, the biologist, once said, "Every scientific theory goes through four phases: uh, four phases of reaction." Which is that's not true. Right. <laughs> that's an interesting, if perverse, way of looking at the world. I see the experimental evidence accounts for certain edge cases, and I have always believed it. I've always – everyone knows. It's obvious. Exactly. <laughs> Behavioral economics is now it – is, it is in the last several years, in part because of the Nobel Prize and so forth, in part just because of the mounting weight of the evidence. It's attained that third state, right? Everybody now understands that there are, there are cases which the neoclassical model of economics – does not explain which behavioral economics does famously the ultimatum games, dictator games, and so forth. We have not yet seen an interpretation of human behavior that moves behavioral economics to the center of the calculation rather than the neoclassical model. And uh, the fact that the fact that it's an externality, the fact that Wikipedia is described in in, in classic economic terms as a positive externality. Um, Meaning, by the way, updating the theory might not be a bad idea to internalize non-financial motivations as a way of explaining the world. Because if Wikipedia is an externality, your theory isn't working hard enough to explaining what's to explain what's going on. And the the presence of these motivations is, I think, a a hard a hard question to take on. Yeah, I should I should add uh, when I said positive externality, I used the term first. It it simply means a benefit that I don't get to capture. But it's, but that's because, for my list. That's for our listeners. But because the because the benefit is external to the calculations, um, I, I think that Wikipedia will stop being viewed as an externality because it is the thing that people are actually reacting towards. The, the, the externality of Wikipedia is, in fact, the business value it creates. Right, the positive economic effects of Wikipedia are the externality, and the social effects are what 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 are internal to the transaction. Yeah, it's it's an interesting point. I, just to defend neoclassical economics for a moment, uh, a number of people, including myself, actually, ironically, uh, have, have tried to incorporate 
altruism into the formal models of, of so-called uh, homo economicus, social, you know, economic right, man right. who only cares about profit. And, and I think Adam Smith understood that was wrong. And in fact, uh, if you go to the, uh, the new edition of the Concise Encyclopedia of Economics, we'll put a link up to it uh, for the listeners. Uh, I have an article on charity, which economists have been thinking about for uh, a long time, hundreds of years. Uh, so it's a bit of a straw man to say that people weren't aware of Economists weren't aware of the fact that people get pleasure from from helping others. I think they do. What's fascinating is that the models of how people, of how much of that would take place, were quite sterile. And I, I think right. you're right that right. the uh, we don't we don't understand why those sterile models. Uh, we understand why they, that they don't work. That there's a lot of voluntary activity that takes place that seems to be uh, outside the scope of this traditional model. But I think the challenge for behavioral economics is trying to do something other than saying, oh, the other model was wrong. As you say, it needs to be embodied in the model in a more thoughtful way. And that may be beyond the scope of uh, social science. Uh, I hate to say that, but I'm uh, increasingly skeptical of the well, ability what's, of what's, – I think it's not so much beyond the scope of social science as it requires a uh, – I mean, one of the things that differentiates various sciences is what's – what the scientists are willing to regard as both proof and an explanation, right? If you get a biologist to account for something to the 95th percentile, right, eureka, right, they're, they're, they're popping champagne in the hallways, right? A physics experiment that, that oh, only casts things yeah. to the 95th percentile is, is wrong on its face. And so because social life involves so many more truly complex feedback loops, both yep. positive and negative. That's correct. The physics of this stuff is much more like the physics of weather than the physics of gravity, which is to say the degree of predictability, even when you know all the inputs, is much lower than uh, I think the classic, uh, you know, than, than, than at the very than the neoclassical model hoped for. And and it's it's so I think it's not so much whether or not it's beyond the bounds of social science to explain as it is understanding the explains the explanations are going to shift to being largely probabilistic the, about the best we can say is cloudy with a chance of collaboration <laughs> uh, and and that case means that the, or that that effect means that a lot of this stuff is now going to be stuck in a world of special cases right if i launched the identical uh, software with as 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 identical input conditions as I could create. I could not create an alternative to Wikipedia because Wikipedia itself already exists. Right. So so I think the the next question we can close on this is uh, what are we going to do with that cognitive surplus? I mean, I think one of the themes uh, our listeners have heard on here a few times is. Uh, I think the American standard of living, at least until this month, we're, we're taping this in yeah. uh, on October. I think it's the tenth, uh, two thousand and eight. Uh, stock market's not doing real well this week. Okay. And are you looking at the numbers now? Or? No, I don't have to. It's, just, it's been a bad week. <laughs> Fair so, it's so been a bad week so far. It's not climbing right. out at all. I don't think it's coming out today, but it might. We'll see. But my point is is that uh, you know we're in the middle of a, of a pretty bad financial mess. But uh, if you look back at the last, uh, say, 50 years or 30 years or even 20 years, I think one of the things uh, – I heard, first heard this from my colleague, Larry Anacone – when we talk about our standard of living, one of the things we neglect, uh, one of the many things we neglect when we try to measure it, is what's changed in the workplace. So in the workplace in 1900, most Americans, uh, well, about 40 percent, were on the farm. That's a pretty unpleasant life. Uh, it's brutal. It's, uh, it's, right, danger right. it's dangerous. Uh, today's workplace is remarkably safe, but it's and it's less brutal. But it's less brutal in one particular way that I think people fail to notice, which is the amount of leisure that's available while you're under the roof, to the extent you're under a roof, uh, of your employer. And people yeah. take lots of leisure on the job. And I know a lot of you out there listen have told me you listen to my podcasts at work. I'm not quite sure what you're doing at work. Um, I don't, don't want you to lose your job, but I find that fascinating. And I think uh, this cognitive surplus you're talking about is really ubiquitous. Of course, some of it comes not just from TV, but from family life. I mean, there's other right, course, challenges we have with dealing with this. But my, my closing question is, uh, we've got all this opportunity cr to create collaborative projects because of the lower transactions costs that right. we started talking about. Any thoughts on what those might be? Because they're not going to be another Wikipedia, as you point out. It's going to be something else. Right. No, no, that's right. Well, so, yeah. So here's, here's, here is, again, in in the world of 
of speculation. Um, the greatest successes we've seen in harnessing uh, this surplus have come in the domain of either sharing or collaborating on uh, the creation of intellectual property. And it seems to me that the signal non-technological event that's enabled that to happen was the creation of the GNU public license, the first, the first example of what we now call open source licenses, founded by Richard Stallman, the Free Software Foundation, 20, you know, 25 years ago this year. And what that license did is it injected the right amount of inefficiency into the intellectual property system. It said, essentially, you can share if you abide by these kinds of rules, but not if you don't abide by these rules. And the rules being, essentially, share and share alike, right? That, that, that you, can, you can change this this piece of software as long as you share your changes. And when other people change their software, they'll share their changes with you. And it created, in using copyright law as the vehicle, it created something that, that actually subverted rather than, than extending the traditional goals of copyright, which is to say it created more rights for the user and fewer rights for the creator. And, and, and that intuition replicated, you know, millions of times and then copied famously by Larry Lessig in the Creative Commons movement uh, uh, with, with in other kinds of intellectual production has led to this explosion of uh, collaborative use because people are, are no longer afraid that they'll be alienated from the work they contribute. There is not an equivalent right now for collective action, which is to say where a group of people come together and take real-world action and then succeed or fail as a group. All of the examples we have of collective action right now are protest-oriented. They all rely on stop energy. Uh, they're political protests. They're protests against economic entities. But they tend to be short-term, high visibility, coming together and registering some sort of protest. I think that what's coming is a license for collective action that's analogous to the way the GPL provided a license for intellectual production, which is to say that someone is going to figure out how to take the vehicle of incorporation, literally embodiment of a group, which is the way that the state defers to the judgment of groups, is going to figure out how to make that work for these kinds of groups that assemble without the traditional institutional overhead. It's a very interesting experiment going on in Vermont right now with the virtual company, the foundation of the virtual company, which doesn't require paper filings, doesn't require physical headquarters, doesn't require hierarchical management, uh, and seems to hold out the possibility that a group of people who assemble entirely online uh, but are minded to take action in the real world can get you know, can, can do everything from hire and fire to have bank accounts, uh, create their own bylaws, and be deferred to by the state in the same way that copyright law creates deference to the creators of software. And if we get that, if we get a license for collective action that actually works, I think we're going to see an explosion of this stuff spilling out of just intellectual property production into uh, groups that are affecting things well outside, well outside the sphere of, of pure information. Of course, the state would see that as a competitor if, the, if uh, politicians were, were wise. And, 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 and would I think see that? I think, I think it, would, it would be not wrong to see it that way, but the state has, has I think, regarded, uh, you know, regarded, regarded businesses as competitors on some level, and at the same time understood that in the functioning of the ecosystem, it's, it's necessary to have that competition. Well, actually, I shouldn't have said what I said. There is no state. There are only individual politicians. So there isn't no entity to be scared about the competition. There are only individual politicians. Right. And, so that's, and, and many that's, of them really, will, that's really the question. And, 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 many of them will and, find the calculus such that they'll support those things. Well, so, so, the, so in, in fact, uh, you know, one of the, one of the you know, both the great, the great and terrible things that happen in the United States happen because of federalism. Right? They happen because we have 50 competitive systems trying alternate models. If there were a single decision, yes or no, should we allow virtual companies to exist, it's quite likely that the answer would be no, but there are 51 decisions. Yeah, you're right. There's the federal decision and then all of these states. In Vermont, right, if Vermont starts making traction, starts, starts getting headway with this, uh, the number of politicians who, who view the case on the margin between increasing profitability and decreasing power they, they, they may go for profitability. Right? If Vermont becomes sure. the Delaware of cyberspace, right, yeah. the place to go and incorporate if you've got a relatively virtual organization, uh, there will be a bunch of people kicking themselves in 10 years' time for, for not having understood that that was a possibility. 
Well, thanks for sharing it. Uh, maybe a few of them will get a little more eager. That'd be good. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> My guest today has been Clay Shirky, author of Here Comes Everybody, The Power of Organizing Without Organizations. Clay, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.